Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics, particularly the British ones. I'm Eamon Clark and I have a return guest from episode 189, Dread vs. Death. He is the Formula One correspondent for The Guardian. Uh, he's got a book about that coming out as well, which we'll talk about later. Uh, welcome back, Giles Richards. Uh, hello, Eamon. Absolute pleasure to be here with you again and to be talking about such a fantastic book. Yeah, we've got an absolute biggie to get to in just a moment. I'll just mention that you were also on the show last week with Conrad, uh, where we were talking about some cult films that were related to 2000 AD, which was great fun. Yeah, it's been. It's, this has been a couple of fantastic double headers for me. I, my debut with Conrad, uh, and uh, and my debut on the Mega City Film Club as well. Yeah, so this is this has been a great week. I hope I hope your listeners can put up with having me on two weeks in a row. <laughs> I'm sure they can, and especially because, as I say, we've got a biggie of a book with lots to talk about. So let's get to it. Tell us what we're doing for your return visit to the book club. Uh, right. Well, this week we're doing uh, V for Vendetta by Alan Moore and David Lloyd, um, uh, which is, you know, I, one of the great, one of the great graphic novels. Absolutely. One of that, you know, this feels a little bit like when we tackled From Hell. It feels like we're tackling one of the huge books. Um You've mentioned the two big names, and it really is a sort of Alan Moore and David Lloyd joint, I think, but some additional art on one episode by Tony Weir. Steve Whitaker and Siobhan Dodds did the colouring for the DC release, lettered by Jenny O'Connor, Steve Craddock, Alita Fell, edited originally by Des Skin uh, in Warrior, and then by Karen Berger for DC. And, of course, this was in Warrior magazine issues 1 to 26, from 1982 to 1985, and then, of course, it started in 1988. Uh, DC reprinted the series in colour and then, of course, continued and finished it, thankfully. Collections of V Vendetta, there's been loads. I, as I said in our notes, I've got the big hardback 30th anniversary edition, which was going off the DC dates. But there's so many trade versions of um, V for Vendetta, so plenty of ways to get hold of this one. So, Giles, first of all, I think you mentioned this in your origin story last time, that after, you know, your initial experiences for comics uh, and 2000 AD, V for Vendetta was one of those titles that popped up in the 80s for you. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it really was, I mean, it was one of the... And, and the reason I wanted to do this in, on, the, on the book club was because it's, it's a, my favourite comic of all time by by a sort of country man, and you know, and I and I've read read all of the Alan Moore stuff, and I'm long term 2000 AD reader, but this still stands head and above above head and shoulders above all the others. I mean, I mean, I I, I love this. I adore everything about it. I, I love the art, the story, the ideas, how how thoughtful it is, how thought provoking it is. It, for me, it feels more like more than a comic. It it, it often it, it reads. Sometimes it feels like a treatise as fiction. Uh, it is, but it doesn't read in a clumsy way in that sense. It, 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 it's a pleasure to read, but it is more than the sum of its parts, I think. And, and, it, and it's, in, it, I personally find it impossible to be moved by, not to be moved by. And, um, and my experience of, of people who, other people who've read it feel similarly. Um, so, you know, that's why, I mean, I mean uh, uh, somewhat controversially, I also think it's probably Alan Moore's best work and i and i don't 
doubt that Alan Moore would be appalled to hear me say that. Um, but but I think it is. I think it's better than Watchmen. I think it's better than From Hell. Um, I I am aware he he. It has mentioned his naivety. He was very young when he wrote, I think he was 22 when he started writing it. Uh, he was very young when, it, when he did it. But regardless of which, I think, uh, I mean, again, you have to admire what he's achieved for someone so young. I mean, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Um, the, the combination of story and art in this book is remarkable. I mean, it's not just the style, uh, it's the ideas. There's a tone, not least in the... Um, the revolutionary decision that he and David Lloyd came to to not use thought bubbles or sound effects and to effectively try and outlaw captions wherever possible, which was, again, uh, it, it seems like a small thing, but it was is absolutely revolutionary and, it, and is extraordinarily well suited to this form of story. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that's why I wanted to do it. It's 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 a complete package, I think, as a, as a as a book. It's um. It feels to me almost, it's almost symphonic. It's almost like a, a, a operatic, operatic piece of, piece of art. It's sweeping, it, 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 it moves between grand sweeping gestures and, and the minutiae of its characters, which of course Anna Moore observes brilliantly, but it, and it does so with absolute ease that makes it an, an enormous pleasure to, uh, to read. And we were talking last week just briefly about, um, stumbling across probably the same issue of warrior each as our first introduction to it yeah we were um and, and i'm yeah i think i think bizarrely across across time and distance we were <laughs> reading the same comic at the same time yeah. i what happened i was 12 years old at the time uh and my dad would often just pick up a comic for me usually just based on the cover uh, and bring it home. And he brought me home the 1982 summer special of, of warrior, which I can tell you, I have still, I've still got right here. Uh, it was 50 pence and the, the, the ban on it is 52 pages, seven comic strips, all British. Uh, it's got a very, very uh, arresting cover and it had the vaudeville chapter four of V for Vendetta in it. And I, and I mean, Dad will have picked it up because the color, the cover looked great, but it, um, it was, it was too old a comic really for me, I suspect at the time. I mean, cause I was, I liked 2000 AD and that was when it was in its proper, it was still, still largely aimed at kids. Whereas this is very, this was, is a much more grown up, a much more grown up comic, but that, but I kept it and I read it. And the one story that always stuck with me was V for Vendetta. Uh, of Audeville is the episode where he confronts Commander Prothero uh, the com- commandant of the concentration camp where V was held, um, and he confronts him for for his crimes and and punishes him by effectively turning him insane, and including including in that by by burning the commander's collection of dolls. Now, again, I didn't know I didn't know anything about this story before I read it, but it is absolutely gripping, and I and and I didn't really know what was going on, but it, but it's it, but I did really like the art and I did really like this story. And so I kept it and, 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 I, and every now and then I'd pick it up again and, and read just this story. It absolutely transfixed me. Um, but that was all I knew about it. I was only young. And, um, and then in, in 1988, as luck would have it, I, I moved to London to go to university and I was in halls of residence on Charlotte street in, in central London. And I was, I was studying at the London school of economics and my walk from my hall of residence to the London School of Economics took me past Forbidden Planet, which was uh, aptly on St Giles Street, 
at the time. And of course I pop in and then one day I popped in and I saw this comic and it was called V for Vendetta. And I thought, I, I know that. I don't, I know that. And I picked it up and, and there was that episode of vaudeville that I, that I'd had four years earlier. I had no idea that it had been then collected, that, that this was DC reissuing the comic from start. Well, well, could to complete the comic, which had ended when Warrior folded, uh, in monthly instalments, and I, I, and my joy in discovering this was was absolutely enormous. And so, of course, I bought it, and then once a month, every month for that, my, my effectively most of my first year at university, there was a a sort of ceremony of roughly when it was coming out of going to Forbidden Planet. Literally, couldn't wait for the next edition. It was so good. It was absolutely gripping. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it just, you know, I think it's the only time I've ever really desperately wanted a comic to come out to see it so much. And I shared it with my my friends there and my brothers and, and everyone loved it. And to the extent that people were saying, is the new V out yet? Is the new V out yet? And when and at certain points when things happen, such as the, which I'm sure we'll come to, such as the, the Evie's, Evie's imprisonment and transformation, the, the genuine, genuine shock, such that it was a talking point that, that would later uh, become referred to as a water cooler moment in reference to TV. But this was just a, you know, some, some scrofula students going, can't believe that, you know, that happened. It was unbelievable. So, so it was, I mean, that, that long and torturous story rather echoes the sort of long and torturous um, birth of, of how, well, not birth, but how we finally get to then a collected graphic novel of this, of this story because DC put it together um, as a, as a run of 10. And also which I have now that original run of 10 still right here in front of me. They're a little bit tired, but they, um, I can tell you now that, Issue six still has the price sticker from Forbidden Planet on it, and it was um, one pound thirty at the right. time, <laughs> um, which is an, again date, dates it nicely. I'm not altogether sure you could get anything comic wise for one pound thirty anymore. But yeah, so so it, in, in in its own way, it, it sort of followed me into my own sort of adulthood, and and what a way what a way for it to do that. Fantastic stuff. And yeah, I mean, I picked up that Warrior Summer special and what a what an astonishing introduction to um, a couple of strips, but particularly to V for Vendetta. Um, Did you go on to read more Warrior at that point? I, I then, this uh, interestingly enough, that was my sort of getting back into comics was Warrior Summer special. Precisely. And I then tracked down all the previous ones and carried on reading it right to the end. So I was one. Of, I was one of those who, in 1985, saw. And here we are. Spoilers now for a comic that is um, over 30 years <laughs> um, Saw Evie exit the prison and emerge into the shadow gallery, and then was left on that cliffhanger for I reckon we worked out three and a half years or something like that. Yeah. Before the DC series started and got to that point. Um, well, we'll come back know. to that, I think. But that's, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, well, um, you you were there. You were there right to the end, and then and then left left hanging. Yes. <laughs> in a in a nutshell, what is 
Or who is V? What is V for Vendetta about for anybody who hasn't read it? And I can't believe that there's many people who've not read this this masterwork. No, I, I can't imagine anyone listening to us has not had it. But but anyway, just so I mean, just briefly, effectively, the story is set in the in the 1990s Britain, where there is a uh, ruled by a fascist government, which has taken over after a nuclear war has occurred, but which from which Britain was spared because uh, a previous Labour government had had unilaterally disarmed it from its nuclear weapons, uh, and we, effectively we follow the protagonist who is a who is an anarchist called V, uh, a character who remains in, in, um, whose whose real identity remains unknown throughout. He's he's clothed in the iconic Guy Fawkes mask, which is now known globally. Um, and he is effectively wreaking both vengeance and terror against the authorities. And, and, and in the process of that, as his story is told, we learn, we also learn the stories of all the people whose lives he touches, uh, both indirectly and, and directly, very, very emotionally in some cases, as ultimately he, he brings down the regime that has that has wronged him and and effectively the the nation as well. It's uh, an extraordinary story. Um, quick word about origins of the strip. Did did you? I don't know if you've had a chance to ever read that Alan Moore behind the painted smile article. Yes, I have. Yeah, how, how the strip was created. Yeah, yeah, I have. I mean, it's 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 a great piece. It's it's. I think it's pretty much included that article. That was originally in Warrior, in fact, uh, is pretty much included in all, in all the trade editions, as far as I can tell. Certainly, the one I've got now, and, th- and this is probably my, I would have said about my tenth copy of this. Such is the fact that I keep end up giving them to other people. Um, but yes, yeah. So I mean, he he'd had uh, Alan had, had Alan says he had a, he had an idea about this about uh, when he was about twenty two about a character called uh, which I could think he called the Doll. Yeah. Um, which was uh, what he described as a terrorist in white face makeup, which he which he put to DC Thompson, and DC Thompson rejected it in favour of a comic called Battle of Bun. He bombs the hunt. So it's their loss, I suspect, since I don't have a Battle of Bun uh, <laughs> graphic novel. <laughs> anyway, so um, but he but he did like the idea, and Deskin, who who was who who created Warrior. And, and went on um, wanted a strip, wanted a, wanted a, a noir strip, and he'd gone after David Lloyd, who and uh, David Lloyd had drawn Night Raven, which is which is thirties noir for Deskin in Hulk Weekly, uh, uh, one of the Hulk, one of the Hulk mags, uh, and it was great, and it was a really you know be- some beautiful David Lloyd art, and um, Deskin wanted similar for Warrior. But David didn't want to do another thirty strip. He, he felt he'd had enough of it. So, so in, in combination with more, they they decided they they revisit the the, the vendetta idea, the terrorist idea, uh, but set it in the nineteen nineties. So David didn't have to draw on uh, on on the thirties again, and um, and they then they then moved on from there. There was quite a long, as far as I can tell, quite a long development process in this because this this wasn't one of those ideas where. Moore just had it all in his brain and it was like bang 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 I know this is where it's gonna you know it, there was a lot a, a lot of toing and froing between them you know and and he's admitted that they, they Moore's admitted that they got some of this wrong you know his, his prediction that it would take a nuclear war to prod the UK into fascism he, he thinks was, was shows his naivety and and also the the fact that he thought uh, uh, even a limited nuclear war would be survivable which which was pretty soon after this proven to be not the case uh and then there's skin 
came up with the idea of the title V for Vendetta, which both Moore and Lloyd really liked. And then it was Dave, it was David Lloyd who who said, I you know he was doing sketches and everything, and he looked at and he looked at how it was progressing, and he said, why don't we get rid of the speech bubbles? Why don't get no, not speech but thought bubbles? Why don't we do no sound effects? Why don't we use minimal captions? And uh, and Moore loved the idea, um, and. Again, as I said earlier, that is, it's an incredibly striking part of this story. Absolutely. You know, there are, mom- there are moments when it demands enormous amounts from Lloyd's art, but he's so good, he pulls them off every time. And, it, and, it, and that contributes it to being such a good story. And, and then, I mean, I mean, the other thing Moore says that is very interesting in that, in that essay is how once they were on this path, once they had their, they had their, they had the look of V, they had the idea of, of this noir comic set in the nineties, but without, without traditional comic formatting, the story began to tell itself as, as the two played off each other is what he said. I mean, I think he said, he says there were elements emerging from the combination of my words and David's pictures that neither of us could remember, which is, which is, that's a really interesting thing. For a writer to say um, and suggest there was a almost an alchemy to what they were creating here, uh, and uh, as a reader, I think you feel that. And um, we know David Lloyd was the one who suggested Guy Fawkes and the Guy Fawkes mask, and also the alchemy affected um, once Alan Moore started playing with the letter V and all the various different things that they could do with V uh, as a sort of, you know, the title of stories, characters, numbers, and so on. It all worked out in a rather spooky and, as you say, almost sort of alchemical fashion, isn't it? It it, uh, does. I find it really interesting because Animal, obviously, his original thought was that it would be ven- it would be called vendetta now there's a v theme in that but but then obviously deskin um said v v for vendetta and and i'm i'm not sure how this progressed but alan clearly threw himself into that concept he liked the idea of the v uh, and and the v being fundamental to it so as you say every chapter name begins with a v the 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 leading central female protagonist and in fact in fact what i would refer to as the protagonist of the book is called evie there's the the, the v himself is 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 the man from room five or v in roman numerals which is which is a key plot point that we that it almost feels throwaway but it's so clever in that in that um uh, dominic tells the detective finch is he's the one who identifies that they used roman numerals in the concentration camps and that helps them toward identifying who V is. Uh, he uses the quote, V veri venisum vicius vici, which is um, by the power of tooth I while living have conquered the universe. He has that quote in the shadow gallery. So, so more, it, it really, really embraces it. And I think it works superbly because it gives the book a thematic sort of tone, a, a, it's a satisfying sense of, sense of uh, almost a spine holding it together, but without, without, you know, without being cheesy or, or overdone, it's just it's it's a nice it's a nice clever piece of writing. Astonishing stuff. Well, we will get to. I want to talk about the artwork, but let's start with some characters. Let's talk about V himself, um, who, as you suggest, may not be the protagonist of this story. Um, is V 
would you say, you know, I hesitate to use very simplistic childlike language, but is, is V the goodie in this story? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's great because that's the perfect question because, because that's, there's no straight answer to that. And I, and I know I, from my reading, I know Alan Moore didn't want there to be a straight answer for that. He very much wanted V to be an ambiguous character. Uh, and I think he, he is enormously successful in that. Um, it, he clearly, you're meant to be sympathetic towards him, uh, and and you know, the, the the people he is dealing with largely do deserve what <laughs> do deserve what they get. But but nonetheless, it, it, he he is a broader character than simply the goody, and 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 and, in, and his way is is also he's presented in a way, almost as a superhero, but without any of the rest of the superhero cliche, so that it's not a straightforward... You know, he doesn't have an alter ego. He doesn't have... You don't see him getting changed into his outfit. Uh, it's... it's he is, he is, as the book suggests as it goes on, more of an idea than an, than an actual than an actual person. Clearly he is a person, but we never find out who he is. And, and that's very important to it. I mean, Alan Moore said he didn't want to tell people what to think he just wanted people to think and and yes um there is a v does that brilliantly so we we understand him when when he is dealing with commander Prothero, for example who quite quite clearly was a nasty piece of work but then there is that this the the prison scene with evie which is which is extraordinarily powerful but also you know very ambiguous as to how we're meant to feel about that you ultimately ultimately you feel it, it is given some conclusion because Evie comes out of it changed and and as she feels for the better for it. But but that process certainly I'm, I'm not altogether sure you, you're supposed to sympathise with him for that. So it's a very it, it it is it's a very it's it's a much more complex character than one might expect in in ordinary circumstances. And so that's just as well that there are characters around him. That that one that are also protagon- central protagonists, but that are that, that are less ambiguous, or the one or the one can feel more directly for spe- specifically Evie. It's astonishing. Um, I mean, I can tell you that I was reading Warrior Magazine cover to cover, every word, right. and the letters pages in Warrior Magazines um, were full of queries and suggestions as to who V actually was. Right. And I think the first place I read the suggestion that he might be Evie's father was in the letters page. And, you know, in a way, as reading boys' comics, we were sort of trained to try and figure out the secret, you know, identity. identity. Yeah. Uh, but as you say, as the book progresses or as the story progresses, we, you know, more does this thing, which V, as you've said already, explicitly expresses that, you know, the character of V is an idea or a concept it's not a person, you know. There's no, there is no name behind the painted smile, as it were. Um, no, no, that's right. And, and and it would be the poorer for it, would it not? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if Absolutely. it had been, if it, if it had been, if if the, the the payoff at some point had been it's Evie's father, that would have been a catastrophic cop out. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I, and and it all it works all the better towards that ending, towards the ending where we have that absolutely immortal scene uh where v v says to um finch he, he said what did you think to kill me you can't kill an idea and yeah. uh and so any suggest you know we do know he is a man but but any revealing anything really beyond that 
would would lessen the impact of those later scenes. Let's talk about Evie herself, who, uh, you know, as you say, is probably the protagonist of the story. Um, We see her in very desperate straits in very literally in the first couple of pages of the first issue. And then she goes on this remarkable journey. What do you make of Evie's character? Well, as you said, remarkable journey is right. And I think she is... I think she is the central protagonist. I think she sits at the heart of the of the story, much as you know it's named after V, and, and V V has all the big moments. You know, the the V blows things up and kills people, but but the emotional heart is Evie. She's she's at the very she's at the very she's very key to everything that happens. And and it, also, it, sh- it should be noticed that this was eighty two, eighty three, etc. And her female protagonists were not. You know, they were few on the ground in mm. those times. Lead female protagonist, and especially one. What I think is what I think is so striking about Evie is this story arc that Alan Moore has her go through. It's absolutely she she starts as innocent, uh, if desperate, teenager, and moves on from that through to adulthood, uh, uh, to to becoming a woman, uh, in, and during a during a difficult process. Um, uh, and, and all the while, she comes to understand who V is without actually knowing who he is. If you see what I mean, um, and that and that as a character is absolutely brilliant. And obviously, we we are able to empathise and sympathise with Evie because she is. We know who she is. We know her background. Um, we know. We know. Uh, so we feel. Specifically, again, I come back to this: the the, the prison sequence and its and its follow up. It, it, they the emotional power of those of those chapters is huge, and it's and it's huge because we we sympathise with Evie, and we've been we've been through all this with her. You know, um, just, just to reach that sequence, just to reach that sequence, there's been an emotional journey that has include has included her her being abandoned by V, find, finding love and and uh, and uh, and safety with a boyfriend only to have the boyfriend uh viciously killed uh with a cutlass of some kind um and and then and then to be imprisoned this, this you know that's a, that's a magnificent arc and then and then it, and then and of course it ends just just brilliantly with with uh a single panel where evie the evie has a moment of realization and uh, where she is take she takes on V's mantle and uh, face, facing the facing us facing the reader facing the camera just smiles and it, and it is the smile of the mask which is again uh, you know perfect symmetry of the story and the art up until that point. So two things to ask you about the prison sequence. The first is about the absolutely extraordinary episode where she gets a letter written Mm. on a scrap of toilet paper from the person in the cell next to her, or so she believes. And this episode, Valerie, where she gets this letter, which is one of the most... It's astonishing. It's an astonishingly moving episode in the middle of all this darkness and grimness of it all. Um, Did it have, you know, a big impact on you when you read it in the DC comics? Yeah, well, this is this is you're 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 quite right to highlight this, Eamon. This this is for me the peak point of this book, and it's what elevates it beyond beyond anything else. This is why 
as I said, I've gone through dozens of copies of this book because I keep giving them to people because especially people uh, who say, I don't like comics, I don't read comics, uh, et cetera. And I said, well, look, just give this one a go. Give it all a go, you know, because you, you, you're, you're thinking it's some guy in wearing his pants outside his tights and with a cape. So just try this. And the, and the, the piece I, we then end up always discussing is Valerie's letter. And so did it have an effect on me? Yes, yes, enormously. I was I was moved to tears, literally, when it happened. Uh, when I first read it, I then had to read it again immediately. And when I was rereading this over the last two days, I was moved to tears again. So th- this is no small beer whatsoever. Um, it's it's an extraordinary piece of writing. It's um, it's brilliantly drawn, but I mean, it's the the, the grandness of of Moore's ambition over five or six pages here of trying of of saying. Can I can I tell this? Can I do this? And he does, and it, and it, and it, and it's ending where she says, where she effectively says, um, "I know every inch of this cell. This cell knows every inch of me, except one." And and it's a close up of her face, and she's and she's crying. Is masterful, absolute masterful. Um, so and, and I so I you know I defy anyone not to not to be moved by that, and and that why it sits pretty much in the middle of the book, I think, but but is is in a way, a centerpiece. And, and as I think I was saying to you earlier, there are no splash pages in this comic whatsoever. There is no double page spreads. There's no full page images whatsoever. Um, yet this is the centerpiece. This is, this is the, this is the emotional equivalent of having five double, double page spreads of, of action or whatever, you know, this is far more powerful that, and it, and it, and it then leads into, it doesn't sort of stop the emotional, the emotional sense. Then it, it, it leads into her having, turning around and saying, oh, you know, she is offered death or betrayal. And she says, and she, and she chooses death, which, it, which ultimately frees her, which again, it, that came, that came, I think then the next, the next issue. Uh, and again, I, you, you were left, uh, left flabbergasted by the, by the ambition and the, and the, the scale of, 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 of Moore's writing here. So the next issue became uh, issue seven of the DC run, which I think was January 1989, which is where I got to find out <laughs> what yeah. had happened, you know, three and a half years later. So you, because, were, you were left on the biggest cliffhanger in comics history, I think. Yes. Isn't it? I mean, I don't know any cliffhanger that has been lasted longer and then been resolved better. And, of course, we then get the huge reveal, which is that uh, Evie has been imprisoned by V himself. Yeah. Uh, and everything that happened to her is pretty much that what happened to him when he was in prison. Yeah, he, he reveals that the lesser was, in fact, passed to him in exactly the same way from yeah. the woman in cell four. I think it becomes a lot easier if we see Evie as the protagonist rather than V, because at this point we're thinking, I'm not sure I like this V character. <laughs> He does terrible <laughs> things to the goodies, you know. Yeah. Um, again, you know, moving on from the emotional impact of Valerie to actually discovering that V has done this, another astonishing moment in the history of comics. As Rob Williams said recently on the podcast, um, turns out that Alan Moore can write a bit, can't he? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, this, as I said, this is the extraordinary thing. First of all, he does this to to uh to evie who is who is a character by this point we're very invested in we 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 really like her she's she's helped v out in 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 some of his revenge revenge uh we we 
literally the last thing you expect is he's going to abandon her and then torture her. And that moment where the cliffhanger you were left on and all the other readers of Warrior were left on, where she opens the door from the prison, she's out of her cell. She realizes that, that, you know, it's an entirely false prison. And, you know, she opens the door and she enters the shadow gallery and it's, V waiting for her. Actually, actually, I think that is a full page image. It is, um, and it, and V is waiting for her, and he just says, "Welcome home." He's a gut punch, absolute gut punch. Again, I can remember in the late eighties, the student, the students of the London School of Economics, all standing around going, "It was V. V did it. What's going on?" Uh, having our tiny little minds blown. Um, so yeah, but brilliant, a, a, an absolutely extraordinary piece of writing, and one like you say. It's hard to grasp the, the, the fact that he, Alan Moore, saw, thought, you know, I, I want him to be ambiguous and I'm willing to make this happen in order to display this because it would, you know, there's, that wasn't an easy thing to do, I suspect. The, the, the easy thing would be, you know, the terrorist is the, the terrorist or the, is the good guy and, and, you know, and we portray him as such. He didn't do that, you know, that, that he would choose to do this to Evie, who he clearly cares for is enormous and and then he 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 asked the question where do you take that how do you justify it and obviously the again in a very complex and an emotional way says this is how i'm going to free you from from everything from everything that has has uh, imprisoned you not just the literal imprisonment but but you know from you the moment you chose your own death over betrayal was the moment you became completely free, it's, and you know, she, she again has a has a, an absolutely beautiful moment when when she said he says, "How did you feel?" and she says, "I felt like an angel." This is before he leads her up onto the roof, uh, and she says, "I don't want to be blindfolded." And he said, and the, and the panel end, the page ends with him saying, uh, "All the blindfolds are gone." So again, just great piece, great piece of writing that just sort of makes. What preceded it? Okay, but but again, you yeah, you're you're sort of with Evie more uh, on this. Can I just ask, what when um when you picked up that first DC one uh, three and a half years later, how that felt? <laughs> well, as you know, I was talking about this before. I had try, I was intending to try and track down when DC announced that they had secured it from Moore and Lloyd to you know reprint and then continue mm. the story and i haven't been able to find that the announcement yet but it did feel like we'd been left in the wilderness on the biggest cliffhanger in comics <laughs> and then reading it you know three and a half years later it was like you say it's like being hit in the face with with something um you've already we were left with the emotional impact of valerie and then the, the reveal and then finding about as you say what v says to evie about how um, you were always in prison. All I've done is show you the bars and the bit about you know yeah. no more blindfolds. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary, as you say. Such a gut punch. And um, this is why this is why I recommend it to people because they, yeah. they they are not expecting. No one is expecting this from a comic book. Yeah, you know. And I so which is why I want to. So so how did you feel when you read Valerie's letter? How did you feel when you you know? Uh, and that and that's again. I, I that's why I keep keep coming back to this and why i still think it it's it's a masterpiece just a quick word about uh detective finch um there are so many rich 
characters in this story, but Finch as the sort of the opponent to V, the chap who says very early on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch this guy. And in order mm. to do that, I need to understand him mentally. And in a way that perhaps even V is, well, more than perhaps, that V is manipulating Finch to reach the conclusion that V intends. What did you make of Finch and the detective in this uh, story? Well, I think, I think you're right. I mean, in a, in a way, I, I, I think Finch is another great character. And, and he populates this book with with very well written characters. They're not. There isn't anyone particularly too particularly two dimensional, really. But Finch is. Finch. I think Finch is an essential part of the book as well because he is a sympathetic character. We established this. This is established very early on. I think in a very in a very specific way when when he he, he says to the leader, "Well, I don't go a bundle on this new order business." leader i'm just here and and the leader you know says well that's what i'm aware of your opinion and, and you and it's only your skill which is keeping you alive so we we already know that he's he's uh he's a straightforward copper as opposed as opposed to a card carrying nazi so um uh so, so we sort of like him and then he functions very and and because we sort of like him he functions brilliantly as as a storyteller because he is on he is on in his in his efforts to catch v he is he is telling us V's backstory, and that's a very clever device because it, it it removes need for sort of endless exposition or something because we're we are hearing the backstory in real time as as Finch discovers it, which is which I think again, you know, it's it's a very thoughtful and 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 endearing way to make to 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 tell the story. So he's human, he's flawed. We know he's on the, we know he's on the wrong side in the sense that, you know, well, he's working for the fascists, but we do care for him nonetheless. And I, and again, again, that, that's, that's clever writing. And of course he, um, he, he's another character which, who, who enjoys a, who, who ends the story very, very well in the sense that, you know, the end for Evie as she takes on V's mantle is superb. The fact that V has to die, the idea that just to prove the point that he is that there can be no unmasking. Oh, it was Evie's father. Blah blah blah. He needs to die at, as if to prove that yes, it, it, he was more than a man. That it, it, that he is an idea. That it, that it, this is a concept as much as anything else. So he has to die. Evie has to die. Finch, Finch perfectly just ends up rejecting Helen Ayers. Uh, desperate struggle to revive her fascist fortunes and just leaving her and walking away into the distance, which again is pretty a redemptive moment. I think, you know, he, he's moved on from it. He knows he's done wrong and he's, and he's, and he's, he's quite literally walking away and leaving it behind, which is a great, another great ending. Extraordinary stuff. Well, let's, so this may be, as we've said, this you know, this may be the pinnacle of Alan Moore's career. Let's turn to the artwork because it turns out David Lloyd can draw as well. <laughs> and um, yeah. absolutely stunning that this is originally in black and white. Uh, we can see some of the origins of it in the stuff he did on Night Raven, and also he did that Doctor Who Black Legacy story with Alan Moore in DWM. Uh, so. It starts in black and white. Obviously, later on, it's going to be coloured for DC because Americans at the time could not cope with a black and white comic. <laughs> um, tell us about David Lloyd's artwork. Um, 
some of the restrictions they pay, placed on themselves in, in terms of art and what the results are like. Yeah, I mean, I, you could see where this comes from if, if you have a look at Night Raven, um, certainly, and you can see, uh, and, and, and I think you're right, that I think his first work with Alan Moore was that was the Doctor Who one in, um, is it Black Legacy? Yeah, Black Legacy. Yeah, so that was his first work. But then, then this is their second. I think their second collaboration is extraordinary. They put the restrictions on, as as I've said several times, you know, with the captions and the thought thought bubbles and the sound effects and stuff. But he rises to this magnificently, absolutely magnificently. I mean, the, there's his use of because it's a noir, effectively. So it's a lot about light and shade, and he does it absolutely brilliantly. There, are, there are always he uses pools of light and 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 shades of darkness such that everything 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 is clear but it can, it is enormously atmospheric i mean i you know the the artwork here make, makes it as much and i and i would say in in black and white as much as in color i mean that's a different question but i mean just on the art level itself there's another thing he does as i as i've said before there aren't any splash pages so this is a this is a comment a book where he's working in most cases to eight or nine panels per page it's a fairly it's a it's it's a standard layout thing and and in i think in in lesser hands it might become repetitive it might look mundane uh but you never feel that in this book you never feel that it becomes repetitive his his control of getting from one panel to the next and to the next and to the next is is absolutely remarkable you know i if i it's if it's alan moore's best work it's david lloyd's best work as well i mean the, the fact that they came together at the same time to deliver this it seems seems ridiculously unlikely but, but i'm glad they did um uh i mean there are there are some there are some things i made I, i've made a note i think i remember when i was looking at it there are some pages uh, where there are quite literally, there is no caption, there is no dialogue, and there is no no sound at all, and they are absolutely remarkable. So there is a scene, there's a page where Derek Almond catches V, and he's he's confronting him with a loaded gun, and he he pulls the trigger, but the gun is in fact unloaded because he's been threatening his wife with it the night before. Um, and then V and V rushes at him and, and kills him. And that said, that's done in nine panels and there's no sound effect and there's nothing. But the the pulling the trigger, the V, the death, brilliant, absolutely brilliantly done on on a um in in, in a in a page. Uh and it, I, I I shudder to think how hard he must have had to think about that in, in terms of um doing it with literally no no dialogue, nothing. And and he does it again for two pages later in the book when after Evie's boyfriend Gordon is killed and she's sitting contemplating his dead body, which is at the bottom of the stairs. And over two pages, again, no captions, no no sounds, no no dialogue. He captures Evie's emotions as she thinks, as she considers what has happened brilliantly. And, and again, you know, her father comes back into it and, you know, there's this, this idea that the people people she loved dies but without anything but it, it is done in complete silence because it is very much a silent moment and and david lloyd captures that just 
just brilliantly. And I, again, I would, I think any artist would be hard pressed. I don't know what Alan Moore's uh, notes were, you know, instructions were for that, but I think any artist would be hard pressed to capture, capture that scene difficult enough as it is, uh, as David Lloyd has done here. So yeah, I, I, I could read this endlessly, look at this art endlessly. It is absolutely astonishing work. You know, as you said, everything is, uh, well, England in 1997 is a very dark place for a number of reasons, according to this book. But in this book, it's all darkness and the shadows. And they've set themselves limitations in that V's face does not change. He has the painted mask, Mm. the hat, the cloak. They make, obviously, David Lloyd makes great use of the cloak. And I'm particularly taken with scenes early on where you see V almost, well, in fact, as a silhouette on a railway bridge, it's just astonishing. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah. We may Brilliant. be coming back to that panel. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, what he does, and I've, you know, this, I use the art term chiaroscuro, the, the sort of use of just shadow and light to yeah. pick out characters and stories and expressions the, the the wordless storytelling is just superb as you say david lloyd's best thing ever um just extraordinary yes yeah absolutely and and you you right you're right quite right to point out again i mean a protagonist where you don't, where there is no facial expression yeah and and who's and who's and who is you know deliberately sparing in his speech so you know they, 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 you, there is no great exposition from v there he doesn't explain what he's doing uh, largely, you know, so, uh, what, a, what a challenge that is for an artist. I mean, there's another, there's another moment again, similar after, just after the, um, just after he's, he's, he's glimpsed as a, a shadow leaping onto a train after he's, I mean, there's two things about this that strike me. One is how, one is how enormously well and sparingly David Lloyd does violence, which is a, a common, a common failing of many 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 modern both comics and novels which is just to make violence the violence far too graphic whereas we almost we never see any detail in this so in the train where v where v captures commander prothero two the two policemen with him are killed by v but they are killed in complete darkness and you see nothing the only the only indication that that, that something terrible has happened is when finch inspects them afterwards and he says i think it was done with someone's fingers which is horrific obviously horrific but you don't see it at all um and that and then and then at the end of that sequence the light and shade moment is um when prothero opens his eyes realizes the two policemen's policemen are dead and there's complete darkness and and he says and v and he he looks to his left and v is just sat there in a little bit of light and uh, i think v says hello and that and that's it and what a what a what a beautiful moment that is just yeah he just says sorry he just says it's all darkness and then and then uh prothero flicks his lighter on and in the lighter v is v is just stood next to him and says hello uh great just there, there are there are endless moments like that as well you i mean you know you can flick through and find them find them every other page basically extraordinary um i'll mention that when dc reprinted it they had to get some filler pages just to so that left and right and page turns would continue the same as they'd been in warrior and so Mm. david lloyd did do some full page sort of filler pages which are reprinted in my 30th anniversary edition 
uh, where they, he just tends to sort of pick up on a feature from the story and just do a single page of it. But I, And DC, as I say, had to use those in order to get, I think, chapter breaks and page breaks to work correctly, particularly in the reprinted earlier issues. Right, right. There's not many of them, though, are there? No. I mean, it's not... It is. It is. It is largely the eight or nine panel format. What did you think of shifting from black and white to the rather muted colours of DC? Well, it's interesting. I mean, because I've got both. I mean, I've got I've got this warrior, as I said, right here, um, and it looks great in black and white. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But equally, I think the colouring job on the DC one is as good a colouring job as I've seen on a on a on a colour. Uh, uh, a comic that was originally black and white and is now coloured, I think, because it's it's the colours are muted and they're washes. They they look like washes largely, um, and so they don't distract. I find they are they they. I mean, if they they needed colour to sell it to the US market, then then if you're going to do it, this is a superb way to do it. The mute the muted nature feels to me. It feels. To those of us who grew up in that period, it, it, it feels to suit that sort of slightly grim 1970s, early 80s thing, you know, that, that it, it wasn't it wasn't a very bright period. You know, it's it's people look back at that area in that era now with very rose-tinted glasses where they think it was all Duran Duran and Dealey Boppers, but it was a grim old time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those and those colours really suit that. If you're going to have a noir, you don't want you don't want that bursting from the page sort of look of colour. So yeah, I mean, for um, I think it was Steve Wetzkin, Siobhan Dodds, was it? Yes. Um, they've done a great job here. I think I think as good a job as I've seen. Um, uh, given given, I mean, I, honestly, if I if I was forced to choose, I, I'd happily read this in colour as I would in black and white. We know David Lloyd was very closely involved in supervising the colour work, so you know that that was right. important as well. Um, I mentioned in our notes that DC Comics for a while were doing these noir reprints of some of their big books, so where they would reprint uh, a book in black and white. So they did a Watchmen noir, which I always think was a strange choice. Yeah, um, <laughs> a Dark Knight Returns noir. They've done some other Batman titles. I think they sort of tried it as an experiment, and I think they've stopped doing it. But I always thought that V for Vendetta was crying out for a noir edition of just the black and white artwork. Because obviously, me reading the Warrior issues, I was sort of very heavily hooked on the black and white stuff. If they had done the the uh, the noir edition of V for Vendetta, would that be in your library as well, Giles? Yeah, yes, it would. I mean, I mean, it it, it seems I don't know absolutely baffling to me that the the one Alan Moore book you would do a noir version of is Watchmen. Yes, well, I mean, I, I can't think of a, a book that least less less worked needed less needed uh, uh, a black and white version. I mean, it it, it is brilliant in colour and it needs colour. Um so the fact they chose to do that and haven't done V Fenzetta is 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 inexplicable. I don't um I I would love to see it in black and white and yes I would have it I would have it um right next to right next to the colour one. I don't think you know again it's I think it's interesting because if you if you are giving um again if I'm giving a comic to someone who doesn't read comics then chances are they'll be more appreciative of it if it's in colour 
that's that's just a fact at the moment. And uh, you know, those of us who grew up with the black and white, and I grew up watching, grew up reading 2000 AD in black and white. You know, I I love all that. But but you know, there's different age groups now, etc. I mean, what did you what what did you feel when you bought the DC one as and it came back? Because obviously, then it, it, you'd you'd read it in black and white in Warrior, and then you're, you when it finally did come back four years later. Uh, what did you feel about the colouring? I'll be I'll be completely honest, Giles. I was upset about the colouring. I wanted right. the black and white version, um, right. but that was a certain probably British snobbery at the time. In that you know <laughs> we could cope with black and white comics, whereas Americans we felt couldn't, um, and it felt strange to me. So I missed the black and white stuff. But you know I was obviously gripped by the story, and now I'm quite happy reading it in colour. Um, but mm. I would have a black and white collection in my own library if there was one. <laughs> Well, yeah. Again, that, that seems like a massive own goal for DC. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that I mean, this this book sells well enough. If they put another one out there, it, there would be no shortage of, of of purchases, I'm sure. Well, let's just mention that because 1988, 1989, the comics, the floppies, then 1990, the first trade comes out. I did read that there was probably another one of those 80s DC deals, which was once it's out of print, the rights would re- revert to the creators. But, of course, V for Vendetta is never going to go out of print, it seems. No. It's been reprinted loads of times as an absolute edition. I've got this 30th anniversary hardback. I find that whenever I go into a bookshop, just like a regular bookshop, if they've got a graphic novel section, the three books that you will guarantee will be there are Watchmen, Mouse and V for Vendetta. I was going to say Mouse. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I find those are the three books you're always going to find. There's always a copy of V for Vendetta in whatever bookshop I'm in, it seems. Yeah, no, no, you're quite right. And I mean, interestingly, the the three books, again, I would give to someone who doesn't read comic books are V for Vendetta, Mouse and Watchmen. So there is no coincidence there whatsoever. Um, This Christmas... I went in to buy a copy of – I went to Forbidden Planet in, in central London to buy a copy of V Fendetta, uh, and it was sold out. Oh, uh, right. There, so, you know, there, the demand is there. I, I can't imagine it ever going out of print. I mean, it's, it's interesting that it has stayed so popular given that, given that it is you, – you, you could say it's very dated. You know, everything about it, you know, they, they, everything about it is 1980s. Really, they're set in the '90s, but it's in a, it's a 1980s aesthetic. Yet, yet the, again, credit to the storytelling and the art in that this bothers no one. They are m- more than happy to keep to keep buying it. So, yeah, yeah. Let's mention the, the cultural impact of V for Vendetta. I will quickly mention that I do have the LP record somewhere hidden away in the garage. Um, <laughs> uh, of the music to the vicious cabaret. To the vicious cabaret, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, where did that come from? Oh gosh, goodness knows. Something I picked up years, decades ago. Right. Um, this was extraordinary. I can't remember if it was Alan Moore's Sinister Ducks band that he had. Anyway, the film. Let's talk about the film. Uh, Two thousand five yeah. film version from the Wachowskis, starring Hugo Weaving and Natalie Portman. Um, what do you make of the adaptation? Well, I. I there's a few things about this. I've got an, I've got a little story about it, but um, Alan Moore inevitably took his name off it. Sure, yeah, uh, that's, that's Alan Moore. <laughs> yeah, that's Alan Moore one hundred and one. Yeah, I'm taking my name off this movie. David Lloyd, however, was really pleased with it. I quite liked it. I didn't. I, I didn't think it was great. I'll be honest. I thought it, I, I, it was quite enjoyable. 
I would rather have I would rather they had the ambition and the and the I don't know guts to say I tell you what why don't we make this as it is in the novel why don't we set it in an alternate history scenario do it in the 80s do it in the 90s do it in the UK in the 90s and stay and stay you know pretty close to the thing and I know that's a perennial complaint from comic book fans why don't you why didn't you just make it like the novel like the book um but but in this case because the the style and the tone is so central to it that I think I think changing it and updating it and obviously they have to do that for a for a younger audience nowadays I just think it might have been braver to say well look you know we'll, we'll film it as if you know, as I say, as, like it was an alternate history. So it's, it's, set, it's set in the past. And, and they, they, the technology to make that realistic is, is easily done now. So um, I, well, I, I, mean, I, I should add, I also, in 2005, I, was, I went to the premiere of this film because the editor of my newspaper at the time was sent two tickets and, and he offered them around and I went bonkers and, and said, I'll, I'll take them. So we went to the premiere and... Um, there were a couple of people from EastEnders there. Um, and afterwards they had a party in the Royal Courts of Justice. Um, and so we went to that. And b- being a good journalist, my, myself and my colleague Hilsey had uh, positioned ourselves near the exit from the kitchens where people were bringing out trays of food and drink. So we were first to get our hands on the food and drink. And, and to date this, we were, it was in the times when you could still smoke indoors. And I used to smoke then. And so my claim to fame relating to V for Vendetta, the film, is that I was smoking a fag and gesticulating wildly with my right arm, which had the fag in, and I gesticulated wildly and turning around, did so realise I'd missed Natalie Portman's face by about an inch and a half. <laughs> and I went, I went, oh, crikey. Oh <laughs> and she, yeah, she very graciously just walked on uh, and, uh, and didn't, you know, didn't say, what are you doing, you stupid little tit, um, waving your cigarette around. So, yeah, there are, are very nearly disfigured Natalie Portman in, in, a, in a terrible moment after V Vendetta. But, um, yeah, so, so I, I don't know. I, I think I, I, I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed it, but I, I don't know. It, it could have been better. What, what about you? Well, I was thinking it's probably the best adaptation of an Alan Moore comic that yeah. in film, but that's not... You know that sort of damning with faint praise because the other so <laughs> are yeah. so dodgy. I quite enjoy it. It's got every British character actor going in it, which I like as well. Um, I think some of the bits mm. they do, you know, very well. I absolutely admired Hugo Weaving's decision to, you know, not take the mask off. Yeah, and of course Natalie Portman famously having her head shaved, you know, which yeah. was was a one-take affair because they couldn't redo that, could they? No, 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 no. So I admire that. I quite enjoy it. And I sort of like what they did with the ending, which takes us, in a way, to what the mask became after that. Because we have to mention Occupy and then Anonymous adopting the mask, don't we? Yeah, they do. I mean, that was, I, I guess, you're right. And I, I, I really agree. There, there were elements of it that were superb, you know, and that, and and and... and Obviously, one of those one of those elements was they didn't take the mask off, which was which was fantastic. And the mask itself then has now become a a cultural icon worldwide, um, which is which again is an extraordinary thing. So yes, adopted by anonymous, adopted by protest groups all over the all over the world. I've got one hanging up, you know, 
for the for the occasions when we're required to go and protest. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's global. I think I think um, and there was a lovely quote by Alan Moore about this, which was um, he said. Uh, I wouldn't. When I was writing for Ventetta, I wouldn't. I would, in my secret heart of hearts, have thought, wouldn't it be great if these ideas actually made an impact? So when you start to see that idle fantasy intrude on the real world, it's peculiar. It feels like a character I created thirty years ago has somehow escaped the realm of fiction, and that's a really beautiful thing to say. I think that that, and it's true that in the popularity of the mask, a character he has he created, co-created, has escaped the realm of fiction. It exists now in our world in its own, in, to in, in very much in its own right. I mean, I, you you must wonder how many how many people who who wear it are aware of the graphic novel, for example. I mean, they met many the, the film popularised it. So I also it, I, I'm fascinated. I don't suppose we'll ever know, but I'm fascinated to know how much, if anything, David Lloyd gets paid in terms of royalties. I know DC gets royalties from the sales of masks and I, and I believe David Lloyd gets something, but um, I, I, I suspect he's probably not seeing proper, proper recompense from the sheer volume of them sold. He, I believe you're right. I believe he does get something from the sales of the masks. So thank goodness for that. Yeah. Um, and how fascinating that as V says in the book that, you know, behind this mask is only an idea. And yeah. That now, as you say, that idea has escaped into the world. Uh, astonishing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's, I, again, the idea and the concept is out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was one of the the, the enormously clever things that uh, that he did, that Alan Moore did, was that was to make this the idea more important than the person. You know, the yeah. the, the, the 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 wanting people to think about things was more important than knowing who this character was what his name was, you know, whatever. Again, and that gives it great longevity. Real, really, I mean, I mean, superb. I should also add, from a cultural context, there is um, there's a fantastic song by Pot Will Eat Itself called Can You Dig It, which references V Vendessa and includes the line, Adam Moore knows the score as the chorus. So, which I, uh, as far as I'm aware, is the only reference to V for Vendetta in, in uh, well, certainly in, in Grebo music. Well, in terms of writing, Alan Moore does indeed know the score, and so does David yeah. Lloyd. Um, I'm going to turn you back to David Lloyd's artwork. I'm going to say that we cannot afford any of this original artwork. Um, yeah. I will quickly share that in the back of my anniversary edition, there is the advert, which I've been sharing with you and Conrad, that if you were lucky enough to be at the Westminster Comic Mart in August 1984... David Lloyd gave the first two pages of original art from the very first issue of Warrior as raffle prizes. And if you'd hung on to that 50p from the summer special, you could have bought a raffle ticket for 50p. (laughs) And somewhere there's two people out there who have got the first two pages of V for Vendetta for 50p. Um, Can you imagine... I don't know who they are. I'd be delighted if somebody would just tell me that they still have them and still treasure them. Please, please, yeah. God, please. Um, I mean, I, the, 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 my worst fear of that is that some they would have won it for fifty p and gone, yeah, whatever, and taken it home, and it's and it's been up been up on someone's wall for about a few months, then end up in the bin. I just hope not. Makes, makes my skin crawl. The, the thought of it. Uh, imagine that fifty p raffle tickets. God, God. Imagine. Well, Let's give you artwork. Let's give you all of the pages from um, V for Vendetta, DC covers, Warrior covers, whatever. 
Pick a couple for the the imaginary, the Grail page game that you would love to own if such yeah. a thing was possible. Do you ever see this? Do do you ever see this art come on sale uh, at all? On sale? Well, I did look on heritage auctions, and the last page sold for about. I'm going to get this wrong now. It was over ten thousand dollars, and that was a few Oof. years ago. Um, for one of the pages that turned up on heritage auctions. Yeah. Good lord. Good um, right. Yeah. Well, it's going to have to be the, the Grail pages yeah. remaining imaginary for the moment. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, well, uh, I've mentioned a lot of this already, and I, and I can't escape it. Which is the 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 page I would I would genuinely want to put up, it, it, which in my edition is one sixty, is the final page of the Valerie chapter, which uh, where Evie comes to the realization where. It, she finishes reading the letter uh, when Valerie says, uh, "I wish I could kiss you," and and Eve, and Evie says, "I know every inch of this cell. This cell knows every inch of me except one." It, it, it's the most emotional point of the book. As I said, it, it regularly reduces me to tears. Um, I, I mean, I, it's it, with other with other comics we've done, like you know, Judge Death and thing. It's easy to pick, you know, a very visual page. Here's Judge Death and Judge Fear, you know, brilliant, etc. This isn't really what what I like and remember about the books is this book is the pages that made me feel something, and this one is the one that I I, I mean I don't know if I had up in my living room I might be in a constant state of just turmoil looking at it, uh, but but I would I would dearly love that page and and you know if there as, as a corollary to it the one again which I've mentioned already the one you know the one where. V says, "You know, I've, there are, I've, I've, I've unlocked, I've unlocked the bars. There's no, there's no bars." And she says, "I feel like an angel." And he says, "There's no more blindfolds." That's, that's the page for me that sits alongside that. Those two, the, the, or the two together, work sort of perfectly, I think. And uh, uh, quite, quite beautiful storytelling, quite beautiful art, and beautiful, beautiful writing. What about you? Well, I, I mean, I just pause to say that those are two astonishing pages, and. Um, you know, it's almost, as you say, it's almost impossible to look at the last page of the Valerie letter without choking up. It is mm. so emotional. It's probably one of the most emotional pages I think we've come across on the podcast. Um, yeah. There's another paragraph on that page. I hope that the world turns and that things get better and that one day people have roses again. Oh, yeah. Um, people will know that, you know, the character of Valerie is linked to a rose called Violet Carson. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. So astonishing. So two absolutely emotional pages, um, which I will grant you, and I will share on the uh, the socials when this episode comes out. Mm. And I will just mention that I've talked about it, the panel of the silhouette of V on the railway bridge about to jump onto Prothero's train. There's a great yes. line later on where somebody's, where the detectives say, you know, that's not what normal people do. They don't. That's just something you see in the movies. But the way David Lloyd has done the perspective up the bricks and then just like this silhouetted figure with the cloak and the hat. Um, so it's it's it turns up a couple of times because they do reprint that panel. But yeah, any page yeah. which has got that panel on, I would happily take. And That's treasure. fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I should... You mentioned the road, the Violet, Violet Carson, I think it's called. Again, this is... The, the 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 vision of Moore's storytelling is such that th- that we encounter the rose in the opening chapters, 
and V is leaving this rose at at the scenes of people he has killed. Yeah. Uh, and it, and this means nothing to the police or anything. And we don't really, but it is not until we read Valerie's letter that that becomes that the significance of what has happened, you know, weeks and weeks before becomes clear. And that and that again gives her gives her statement. You know, I I, I want the world to have roses again, and the fact that V has grown the roses in her honour, just extraordinary ways, absolutely extraordinary way, brilliant. And it it's a tiny thing as well, but what 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 power it wields, absolutely fantastic, absolutely extraordinary. Um, you know, I found the reference here, Giles. It just take us away from emotion to to raw dollars. It was forty eight thousand dollars for a page two years ago. Forty eight thousand. Yes. For f- oh, good God! <laughs> so, if you've got your first page from V for Vendetta, which you got for a fifty p raffle ticket in nineteen eighty four, then well done. Yes, well done. I mean. <laughs> Please, please, anybody. Seriously, if you if you're that raffle ticket winner, get in touch. And uh, I mean, I, uh, I can write a story about that for the newspaper. Um, so w- without a shadow of doubt, can I? Um, am I allowed to choose a cover as well? Yeah, absolutely. Pick a cover, John. Just just in case. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, going, you know, to that ten issue original run. There are some great, all of which have great covers. They also have great back pages, uh, which which were sort of sometimes connected to cover, sometimes part photos, sort of photoed. Uh, are photo pieces that re- re- reflected on some level what was going on in that week's issue. But the one, the one I like the best, I think, is episode eight, which is a picture of the um, which is, which is the dominoes. It's the foreground is of dominoes, is of don- dominoes just starting to topple, and uh, and behind it there is Evie and V and the and the background has the carousel from the shadow gallery in it. It's just, it's, it's got great perspective. And it, and if, and you, when you know the story, I just think that's, I think that's, it's a really, it's a really great cover. So yes, I'd have that one for my, for if, if there's, if I've got 48,000 pounds. Well, yes, we'll give you that for 48,000. The cover to issue eight of the DC prestige format run uh, with the, uh, the dominoes. Yeah, just wonderful stuff. Okay, at that moment, the dominoes are to- they are toppling. Yes. Uh, that, at issue eight, we're, we're very much into into the end game, as it were. Great stuff, Giles. Well, I think I'm going to agree with you that this is probably the masterwork from Alan Moore and David Lloyd. Um, I'm not sure that they could ever better this. It's just an astonishing piece of work. Do, do you think it's Alan Moore's best? As you know, regular listeners know, I've got a deep fondness for Halo Jones, but I think this, in terms of the storytelling, in terms of the the alchemy, as you so aptly describe it, of how everything came together in perfection, Mm. the mixture of story and image, which, you know, as we regulars know, only comics can really do, um, do this stuff, is just extraordinary. Um, and you know it's breathtaking it's breathtaking isn't it yeah it is the I mean, achievement you know you can't overplay it I, I really you know if, if if anyone's listening who hasn't read it we're not we're not overstating this it is it is it is a breathtaking piece of work and if you haven't read it for a while now's the time for a revisit and shout out to des skin who had a hand in its uh, origin as well yeah um, wonderful yeah, stuff very much 
Like I say, it's widely available. You'll find it. You've all probably already got it. Uh, dig out your Warriors. Dig out your DC run. Um, it's a sort extraordinary. You can see. You can see to an extent, can't you? Where where the, the this is? He, he wrote this before Halo Jones, and that he Adam Moore was. You know, there was a sense he was writing very strong female characters. You know yeah. that that, yeah. that he that he went on to do Halo Jones after this is no surprise. I think. Great stuff. We've gone long because obviously it's such a big and important book, Giles. We'll talk quickly about guest projects because, as I've said, you're the Formula One correspondent for The Guardian. You're about to get busy because the season's about to kick off, which is why we've quickly got you on for the Film Club and a Book Club episode. (laughs) Um, But also, very importantly, you've got a book coming out this week. I have, I have, yeah, my book's out on the 29th. Um, thanks Thanks for asking me about that. Damon, my publisher will be enormously pleased, uh, as am I. Uh, it's out on the 29th. It's called F1 Racing Confidential. It's available at all good bookstores and on Amazon. Um, it's a. I've spent. It took me 12 months to write. I've spent the time doing a large number of extensive interviews with everyone who works behind the scenes in Formula One. So I've been speaking to engineers, mechanics, aerodynamicists, personal trainers, all the people effectively who make the sport happen, but whom you don't hear about. And um, uh, they've been telling me their stories. I mean, I, I originally did it when I started the book, I was going to write about, about what they did. You know, this is, this is what their actual day job is. But when I, once I started doing the interviews, it, it transpired that the people involved had really interesting stories as well. Um, and and so it became as much about them and their journeys to Formula One, you know, um, and no one had, there are no two that are the same um, uh, and, and, or, and all of them were, you know, very endearing, lovely, witty people. I mean, I get it's sort of like V Vendetta, it's as, as much about the uh, the secondary characters as it is about the the lead protagonists that, that play a role. And it's very Formula One is very much like that. You, you see you see the drivers, um, but behind them there are quite literally hundreds of other people, most of whom uh, no one knows anything about. And my and I I wanted to tell their story, and I and I I hope I've done them all justice. So um, you know, if you like watching cars go round in circles and are interested in um, how how they managed to do that for what will be 24 races this year, then um, I, I, I sincerely hope you'll give it a go. Excellent stuff. I mean, I'll, I'll mention it's a complete coincidence of timing that this is coming out the same week as your book. Indeed, perfect time. <laughs> perfect time. <laughs> um, we arranged this, as I say, because you're about to start globetrotting. So the book's out on the 29th, and look in the show notes for a link to Giles's page, both on The Guardian and also to the book itself. Um, like I say, you are about to go off globetrotting following Formula One around the world. What digital comics do you take or get while you're around the world? Do you take any with you or do you pick up any digitally while uh, you're around? Well, I, t- I, t- I take them with me, actually, um, especially for air- aeroplane flights, which, as we know, can be quite tedious. Yeah. And um, so I'm currently about to start working my way through the five battle action. Oh, no, yes, yeah. The five battles, wasn't yeah. it? It wasn't battle action. No, it was a battle action battle specials, special. The five yeah. battle action specials. I can't tell you how excited I am about that. Sit down and just go, right now, I'm just literally going to read these. Uh, but I, I've just had a nip into the uh, HMS Nightshade one, and I got about two pages in and thought, this is brilliant. I can't, I've got, I'm not, I'm not going to read it a little bit. I'm going to leave it aside. So it, the, the whole, the, I, you know, that looks fantastic. Again, as someone who, 
you know, got battle as a, as a child. This, this is great stuff. So I'll take that. I've also got the first volume of the Trigon Empire, which again, harping back to my childhood, I read originally in Look and Learn, um, which was obviously the comic, uh, comic stroke magazine that my parents preferred me to read Mm. inevitably because of the, their desperate attempts to enforce learning by stealth. Um, but the, the, the only thing I remember about look and learn is how much I love the Trigon Empire. So um, I, I, I'm sure I'm not alone of kids of a certain age for whom, you know, no. the, the, uh, the, the, the highlight of that was, was Don Lawrence, <laughs> et cetera. Um, so yeah, I, 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 they're the two things I look forward to most this year. And then I will be, um, I'll be working my way through uh, the, back i quite often i'll take a back a back load of progs with me you know if i if i get because i do get behind when i'm away so that sometimes i'll just take five or ten of those and again that's that's great i think the one i'm the one i'm up to just now is on is on an absolute roll it's got um feral and foe and it had that the robo hunter dread crossover one off with walter just um just to annoy conrad from space Bring it back to annoy conrad yeah 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 well done well done uh, rebellion for that um so yeah the, again i think that's on fine form too so I, I will be taking that's the sort of thing i like to take away i, I don't do i have to be i mean it t- sounds like a terrible old luddite but i don't do a lot of digital stuff right. i because I, I still buy it all uh, okay i still right. buy it you know um when i was i mean i got the trigon empire in uh forbidden planet at christmas when i was in there failing to buy v for vendetta <laughs> so so yeah that's 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 the plan and i mean there's there's always great stuff there's there's so much great stuff coming out at the moment but as you said earlier i think you know if 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 you haven't read v for vendetta for a while treat yourself yeah sit down again with that i i i did and um i don't i uh, it's not a moment is wasted right rereading yeah extraordinary yeah, and you won't, you know, you won't find anything in comics that packs the emotional punch that Valerie does. Um, although I will say the HMS Nightshade story in the Battle Action Specials also gave me a, a um, bit of a <laughs> bit of a moment. Right, right. Well, I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> cool, Giles. Thank you so much, and thank you for giving up your time this Wednesday afternoon for us to record about V for Vendetta. What a book! I mean, what a book! <laughs> absolutely brilliant i can't i mean you know i don't i don't think anyone can uh, misconstrue what we feel about it but it is it is hard i think it, it's hard not to eulogize over something this good yeah. it really it, it it really is so thank you to giles uh richards formula one correspondent of the guardian thank you to everyone for listening to mega city book club uh as ever find all of these links including links to giles's work at megacitybookclub.com Follow the pod on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Mastodon, Blue Sky, and a new social called The Voice of Fate. And <laughs> find us on the 2080 forums as well with updates there. Or email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you've got a book of your own that you want to come and talk about. So until next time when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and... Broadcasting on 275 and 285 in the medium wave, it's goodbye from me. Wow.